I am pleased to be joined by, and I've been waiting on this, love this brother, uh, pleased to be joined by Pulitzer Prize winning author Hector Tobar for a conversation about the 21st century Latino experience and identity in his new book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. He navigates the complex landscape surrounding the term Latino, unraveling its profound meanings and debunking prevalent myths. Uh, if you, if you uh, are like me, then you've had all kinds of questions over the last number of years about what term to use and how not to be offensive. Is it Latino? Is it Hispanic? Is it Chicano? Is it Latinx? And I've been taking the task by my uh, Hispanic, Latino, Chicano, Latinx friends, <laughs> depending on who they are, for using certain terminology. So I'm confused. Uh, enter Hector Tobar in this hour, drawing from his own uh, personal experiences as the son of Guatemalan immigrants and the stories shared with him by his Latinx students. Uh, he confronts racist ideas head on and offers a profound exploration of the intricate layers of racial and ethnic identity in the contemporary United States of America. And I am pleased to welcome to the airways of KBLA Talk 1580, our friend and brother Hector Tobar. Hector, how are you, sir? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your uh, radio program. Man, it's good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad to have you. Glad we have an hour to sort of unpa unpack this. Um, let, let me just start. Let me start broader, and, and we'll um, uh, start wide, and we'll we'll narrow as we move through this hour. Um, the rationale, uh, the reasoning, the motivation for writing a book like this uh, in this contemporary moment uh, is was what Hector. Well, you know, um, we have been living through this national conversation about race for several years now, thanks um, uh, especially to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of uh, growing awareness. You know, I live in this Northeast Los Angeles neighborhood that I would say is maybe about 50% white. And during the George Floyd spring, my white neighbors were painting Black Lives Matter on their driveways and uh, on their garages. Uh, but that national conversation about race didn't really talk about the way that Latino people and especially Latino immigrants and especially brown-skinned Latino immigrants fit in that race uh, scheme of the United States. Mm -hmm. And to me, as a person, son of immigrants, a uh, longtime uh, native resident of Los Angeles, uh, I've seen uh, the hatred and the xenophobia directed towards our people. And I felt it was necessary to address that um, and, uh, and to do it in a book that was angry and intelligent and in the spirit of my, uh, uh, I, I think of him as a mentor, never met the man, but in the spirit of James Baldwin, mm. to write that kind of powerful essay like The Fire Next Time that would speak to those young Latino people, especially who are growing up in this time of of just, you know, racism and hatred and, and walls and uh, and deportations. And, uh, and I really wanted to speak to them. Yeah. You've said a few things already worth unpacking here. Let me start with this. First of all, Hector, um, how do then you see Latinos fitting into this race scheme in America as you framed it? Well, yeah, I think that um, many Americans, thanks to the Fox News type of media coverage about immigration, think of Latino people as um, either uh, unintelligent, uncivilized, barbarous, dangerous, mm. as this force undermining American society. Um, you know, the dominant images of the Latinos in the media are still that of the maid, you know, the uh, or the, you know, parking valet, the person who's sort of inconsequential to the story, or of the cartel operative. And those images, uh, you know, the guy who's, uh, 
you know, killing people like in Breaking Bad or Ozark or all these all these television shows or Sicario, you know, this absolutely vicious, brutal force that is threatening to undermine American society and flooding <laughs> American mm-hmm. cities with fentanyl. <laughs> you know, that's that's part of the race scheme of it, you know, and so that is actually the whole, you know, reason for existence now of the Republican Party. That's the defining characteristic of the Republican Party. It's their big it's their biggest issue is stopping uh, the immigration of undocumented people uh, and, and, and doing these crazy performances where they transport people by bus or private airplane uh, from Texas and Florida to, uh, you know, uh, to Massachusetts or California and treating the bodies of these brown immigrant people as, this, as actors in a spectacle. Mm. So to me, that, that is, that's the central uh, idea. And also the idea that we basically, Latino, is to many people synonymous with labor. You know, they think of us as this laboring caste. That's just part of what we like to do. We like to be in these underpaid minimum wage jobs, picking crops in the fields. Most of the crops, most of the food in this country is supplied by the labor of um, of Latino immigrant uh, workers. And so that, there's that that's the race idea about us. Mm. We just had a conversation, uh, and if you were listening, um, you heard it, of course. Just had a conversation in our first hour uh, with Harvard professor Randall Kennedy about a provocative piece he wrote uh, recently for the New York Times, which we unpacked in our one, uh, a piece called The Truth Is Many Americans Just Don't Want Black People to Get Ahead. Here comes Hector Tobar in hour two saying essentially the truth is many Americans just don't want Latinos uh, to get ahead. Uh, There's a great deal to unpack in this hour. We talk about black folk last hour. We talk about brown folk this hour. I love it. Uh, He said a moment ago he wanted to write a book. Uh, that uh, that expressed his anger uh, and his intelligence. He's done that. But I want to make a distinction when we come forward, at least uh, attempt to make a distinction between being an angry black man or an angry brown man uh, and righteous indignation. They're not exactly the same. Anger and righteous indignation. I want to press Hector on that. I want to talk about these moves by these various governors. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, most recently uh, shipping off immigrants to parts unknown. They arrive not knowing where they are, no jobs, no housing, no nothing. What is that about? And and how uh, un-American, how racist is that? Uh, this notion of Latinos being the laboring caste, that's worth unpacking. And broadly speaking, this notion that many people still have that we are entering, uh, we are in a moment where th- this community, his community is undermining American society, as he put it. A lot to talk about uh, in this book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. The author of that text, the Pulitzer Prize winner, Hector Tobar, is our guest in this hour on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest in this hour, sounding as good as ever, is Hector Tobar, author of the new book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. Um, Hector, a number of things we've already covered uh, that I want to give you a chance to sort of unpack um, right about now. Let me start with this. Um, you mentioned that you wanted to write a book that was that was angry and intelligent, uh, not unlike um, uh, James Baldwin. So many of us, of course, respect the writings uh, and the work and witness of one James Baldwin. Um, but uh, as a writer, a Pulitzer Prize winner, no less, you choose your words very carefully. Uh, I've often been called an angry black man in my life. I've been called that more than once, I'm certain. Uh, and I have found myself at this point in my life saying, well, it's not so much anger as it is a righteous indignation. Mm. 
about a variety of things. Uh, again, you're the Pulitzer Prize winner, not me. Uh, am I am I trying to thin the needle here, or, or is there something to this distinction between being angry and being righteously indignant? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, with anger, you lash out. Uh, you um, you express this uh, emotion. Uh, in perhaps a, a verbally violent way that isn't necessarily constructive, but with righteous indignation, you appeal to the higher, the higher regions of the human intellect. You appeal to our solidarity. You appeal to our love for one another. Mm. You're indignant because you think that the United States should be a country of democracy and love uh, and understanding and solidarity, and it isn't. And so you are righteous in your indignation about <laughs> about that. And so I'm very much in that second camp, uh, as you are. I think that uh, it's important to deconstruct uh, the the language of our, of, of our oppressors, the ideas of our oppressors. I spend a lot of time uh, in my book asking myself, and I learned this from from James Baldwin. Uh, how, what, what, what is going on with the, the white thinking that produces these racist ideas? Where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. What kinds of insecurities feed it? And I think that that's just a much more constructive uh, and forward-looking way uh, of thinking about the problem. Yeah. Um, to your point now, if a legitimate, uh, not legitimate, if a significant, wrong word, um, if a significant slice of the demos, if a significant slice of the American population think that you are here illegitimately, how then mm. do they ever come to terms with your legitimate grievances? Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I think the uh, you know the young uh, students that I work with, the um, especially some of the undocu- undocumented students I work with, they have this idea that they say we're winning the culture war. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, you know, on a political level, there's no light on the horizon for uh, for any kind of immigration reform that will bring the undocumented into American life, you know, uh, all 11 million people. But on a level of day-to-day life, almost everybody works with, especially in the place of California, mm-hmm. works with, lives alongside, or is intermarried into a family with Latino people in it. And people are getting used to the idea of living alongside all these folks with these crazy, you know, Ramirez and Sanchez, their names, and, you know, and the bandera and the banda music uh, blaring from the, from the pickup trucks. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and now we all have piñatas, of course, in our, <laughs> in our Christmas, in our birthday parties. And so I think that on the level of just, um, on a community level, on a family level, on a neighborhood level, we have made great progress um, simply by working and being successful builders of families, builders of um, of businesses sometimes. So I think that that that's that is the way we've managed to move forward. And following, of course, the example that African Americans gave us during in, the, in, in their history. Look, you know, Jim Crow lasted a hundred years, but those were not a hundred years of silent, passive, uh, you know, acceptance of of, a, of an unequal status in life. They were a hundred years of many different kinds uh, of struggle. 
Um, and so I think that we're hoping that the state of the state now in the United American society, where there are 11 million people who ha- don't have any hope of, of becoming uh, citizens or legal residents, even though they are de facto Americans, we're mm-hmm. hoping that that doesn't last 100 years like Jim Crow does, although it's already lasted at least one generation. Yeah. You mentioned generation. You mentioned neighborhoods. Let me uh, let me uh, pivot here now. It's really not a pivot. It's at the epicenter of your new book, um, Our Migrant Souls. Uh, but let me pass the mic to you and just ask you to share a bit of your personal journey, your personal story as the son of Guatemalan immigrants. Yes, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I um, was raised at, uh, in East, East Hollywood, California. That's where I was born. Uh, at Los Angeles uh, County General Hospital. Um, My parents came in the 1960s, uh, didn't speak much English, uh, and I was educated entirely in Los Angeles uh, area public schools and ended up going to the college at the University of uh, California, Santa Cruz. But we grew up in a city that was integrated and filled with possibilities, a city that was just building the freeways, mm-hmm. a city, of course, that had histories of, of racism and discrimination. Unbeknownst to me, as I describe in my book, we lived right maybe 150 feet from James Earl Ray, who at that moment was plotting the assassination of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. It also happened that uh, my, my godfather at that time was an African-American man, a black man from Memphis, who had worked uh, with civil rights organizations to try to integrate the segregated libraries uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, had been arrested and harassed by the police. His mother put him on a bus to Los Angeles, which is where he met my parents. And so in my earliest days growing up, I had these connections to both white supremacy and to African-American struggle. And I think that a lot of Latino kids still grow up that way. Mm. I mean, we have uh, you know, South South Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles is a black and Latino place. Uh, there's a whole uh, a subculture now of blacksican families, uh, kids who've grown up in these mixed race families. And so that's the Los Angeles that I was born into and that so many Latino people are born into. To the story of your godfather, I'm bouncing around here, but um, I know you'll stay with me. Uh, and, and we're going to get later in this hour, of course, into this conversation, conversation that is about decoding this term uh, Latino. Uh, but yeah. um, but to your the story of your of your godfather, your black godfather being put on a bus from Memphis out to here, um, what do you make of um, these governors uh, in uh, various states mm. putting mm. Uh, Latinos on buses and shipping them to parts unknown. I, I, I am, I'm beyond troubled by it. Uh, to, to the, to the uh, word you used earlier, it's a spectacle uh, as I see it. But what, but what do you make of it, uh, Hector? Right. It's, it's a theater that they've constructed to prove to their base that they are these macho warriors against uh, illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 you know, they're, they're responding to, to um, the fears of people who have these deep insecurities. You know, I say in my book that it's no accident that, the, that so many people in this country have this obsession with undocumented people, because now if you're a working class person or a middle class person, you have to document your life all the time. Mm. You know, we have our credit ratings. We have all of these ways in which we're measured. Uh, in which our worthiness is measured as as consumers, we could end up in debt court. 
We have to document our lives when we go to seek health care, we go to the hospital. And so what these Republican governors and what the GOP is doing is they are sending this message of power to people who feel powerless. So everybody in America can say, well, I'm really lucky because I'm not like these. I'm, what makes me American is that I'm not like these undocumented folk, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense, they're constructing this idea of what it means to be American that is now based not just on, you know, the 4th of July and, uh, you know, the civil rights movement and everything, but also the fact that we are documented and they are not. Does that make sense? Is that, no. you know, I, I think that, that's, that that to me is, is what's going on, is that they're trying to build this sense of solidarity among people who um, are confused about why their country is, uh, is, is in decline by, by giving them this message of superiority. Yeah. You're better than those people are, and therefore, and you can see it because of the way we can treat these people, by putting them on a bus and shipping them wherever we want to, putting them in cages uh, if we need to. Right. Let, let me let me start. Uh, give you a chance to to commence this answer. Now we'll continue on the other side of news, traffic, and sports in less than two minutes here. But since we're talking about these Republican governors, uh, I've had this conversation, you know, ad infinitum, ad nauseum on this program about black folk in this regard. Let's talk about Latino folk in right. this regard. How how do you process them? That many Latinos, many um, um, Cubans, certainly, um, and and beyond. In Florida, vote for people like Ron DeSantis. They vote across the country for people like Donald Trump. I mean, look at the numbers. Um, how, how, mm-hmm. do, how, how do you? How, how do you? How can you explain that? Let me, let me just put it that way. Well, there's a deep conservative streak in uh, Latino culture and among Hispanic voters. Always has been mm-hmm. very very Catholic, evangelical people who believe in traditional definitions of the family. Uh, very much opposed to gay marriage and LGBTQ rights, and so that that every and every big Latino family has at least one crazy conservative. Sorry if that's you listening. <laughs> but we have like one uncle or aunt who exposes those, you know, espouses those views at, at a family gathering, and it's just it's just part of the reality of the Latino community is that it's very diverse in its ideas. Having said that, I think that even many of the more conservative elements of the Latino community are outraged and uh, sickened by some of the things they see happening on their television. Yep. Um, I hope you're right about that. I, I, I trust and believe that you are. But it is uh, troubling for me when I see uh, polling data sometimes that suggests right. um, the percentages of people in the Latino community who voted for and support Donald Trump. Uh, and DeSantis and others. I digress on that for the moment. When we come forward, we'll continue our conversation after news, traffic, and sports with the author, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the new book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. As I promised, we will get to uh, decoding uh, this term Latino uh, after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk. We continue our conversation now, though, with the author Hector Tobar, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Hector Tobar. His new book is called Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. The book is just out, and I'm honored to have L.A.'s own Hector Tobar on this program. Uh, Hector, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking earlier on today's program with uh, Randall Kennedy about uh, a piece that he wrote for the Times, New York Times, called The Truth Is Many Americans Just Don't Want Black People to Get Ahead. Here you come in this hour, and uh, if I hear you uh, correctly, um, your uh, viewpoint, uh, as expressed, of course, in this text in a variety of ways, 
is that there are many fellow citizens who see the Latino community undermining American society, as mm-hmm. you put it. What un- Unpack that for me. What, what exactly does that mean, that we see Latinos undermining American society? Well, I think throughout this country's history, there's been these ideas of what the country should look like and what is good and bad, right? And so uh, American society was segregated, officially segregated, still is kind of unofficially in some ways, because it was thought that better people lived in better neighborhoods and looked a certain way, and people who were criminals and poor lived in other neighborhoods. And and so I think that that, that kind of thinking is what shapes the way we think about Latino people. We place them, we think of them as these people who are um, inherently good at labor, uh, not necessarily good at other kinds of jobs. And we treated them like people who uh, don't deserve to be full members of American society. I mean, created all of these different categories of immigration. There are people who come on visas that allow them to pick apples or grapes for a season and then go back. There are people who have lived here, you know, 20, 30 years uh, working in construction and still uh, are working with uh, without a, a real Social Security number because they're still undocumented. And so this country has just uh, created all these categories, uh, created this idea that we are the laboring foundation of this country, but doesn't really give us the credit for it. You know, they just sort of live with this idea that uh, Latino labor is um, is something that uh, they essentially take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond taking it for granted, I'm, I'm glad you raised this, beyond taking it for granted, um, I, I'm wondering what you think we miss by getting the frame wrong when we look at Latinos as a laboring cast. Uh, Connie Rice was on our program earlier today as well, our regular contributor. And Connie always says, Tavis, get your frame right. Whatever you do in conversation, you have to get your frame mm-hmm. right. So uh, our, our wow. frame. Great question. Yeah, yeah. Our frame of the Latino community is, as you said uh, correctly, uh, a, frame which, a frame in which we see this community as a, a laboring cast. What do we miss about the contributions and right. beyond of this community by only seeing them in that frame or through that particular lens? Well, one thing we miss is our interdependence on one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we have this idea that um, uh, that you go into your average you know, white suburban neighborhood and it's just perfectly manicured lawns and, you know, uh, trees that are sculpted, bushes that are sculpted, and uh, bathrooms and kitchens that are clean. And you don't realize that, that that when you see that, you're looking at the labor very often of immigrant people who work to cut the lawns, keep the roofs work, you know, keep the roofs uh, from leaking, and do all this labor to keep it going. So we're interdependent one another. Mm-hmm. But also, what you're missing is the richness of the Latino experience. The Latino experience is this multiracial experience. There are Latino people who are of African descent, who are Afro-Latinos. There are Latino people who are Jewish. There are Latino people who are, like me, uh, mestizos. We have uh, indigenous ancestors, and indigeneity shapes the, uh, shapes the way we look, and very often our spirituality and our worldview. And so people are missing all of that when they, when they have these stereotypes about us. They're missing uh, just how complex and beautiful our families are. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this book, if it is about anything, it is fundamentally about you uh, taking the opportunity uh, in the book, Our Migrant Souls, to decode the meaning of Latino as a racial and ethnic identity in um, the modern United States. So let, let's let's talk about that now. Um, help me decode this term. You probably heard me say earlier that uh, yours truly mm. and many people listening right now want to be politically correct. We want to make sure that our language is right. And we know that over the years, with regard to a variety of communities, there are certain uh, monikers that we once gave them that we don't we don't use those monikers anymore. Uh, but when it comes mm-hmm. to, to this this community writ large, uh, many of us find ourselves not knowing whether to say Latino or Chicano or Hispanic or or Latinx. And again, again, your book is a much deeper treatise than that. But I'm wondering if, as you address this notion of decoding the meaning of Latino, you'll address that as well. The microphone's yours, sir. Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say that the title of my book, Our Migrant Souls, is a very subtle, maybe not so subtle, nod to W.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. and the Souls of Black Folk. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and so in that book written, uh, you know, turn of the century, of the last century, W.B. Du Bois um, writes, tries to explain and decode the Black experience to people who have this very kind of caricature idea stereotypical idea of who black people are, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, you know, when we talk about terms, um, the well, who Latino people are, it's a really, really complicated story, right? And so for me, uh, Latino is, an, is a really useful term because, for example, my wife is Mexican-American or Chicana. I am of Guatemalan descent, my, our kids were born in Los Angeles, was mixed with them Angelinos, but instead of calling themselves Guatemalan, Mexican-American, Chicano, uh, Angelinos, they can just call themselves Latinos. <laughs> so, you know, Latinos is this expression of an alliance. Yeah. <laughs> it's an alliance, like American Indian is, mm-hmm. right? Uh, American Indian is the Navajo and the Hopi and the Iroquois and all these different nations that have this solidarity against the you know experience of European colonization. And so Latino is an expression of the solidarity of people who've taken this journey. And it's useful in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, and it started, the, the way we use it now, started in the 80s when you had Puerto Ricans and Mexicans working together in cities like Chicago um, or um, New York. And suddenly the term, you know, they would call themselves Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, but when you're working together, they, they, they use this term and they liked Latino because it's a Spanish language term. It's something that sounds like home, like a word you might use at home, mm-hmm. unlike to many people, Hispanic. Um, Hispanic is refers to the Spanish language. And so to a lot of people that felt like an imposition. So to us, I mean, to me growing up, I, I had not heard the word Latino. I had not identified as Latino uh, before uh, I, in the 1980s, when I was in my 20s. And it was then that I heard this term started to spread, and I used it. Nowadays, then, and, then, and then we came up with the term Latinx, because Latino, all nouns in Spanish have gender. They're either masculine or feminine. And so Latino is a masculine-sounding noun, although in Spanish, masculine nouns can also refer to people who are not masculine, but whatever, that's 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 another thing. And so people came up with Latinx so as not to offend those people who are, uh, you know, who don't identify with the male gender or with the gender in at all. 
Um, the problem with that is that only four or five percent of the people in the country who could call themselves Latino or Latinx use Latinx, mm-hmm. right? So it's still very much a college campus uh, kind of uh, of term, right? And as I say in my book, the greater problem for me with Latino is that it's a European term. Mm. So Latino comes from the word Latin, obviously, and it suggests that we have these roots in these Latin countries where Romance languages are spoken, specifically uh, Spain, right? That we have these roots that go back to this um, Latin country. But most Latino people have not just European and Spanish, uh, and, you know, blood in them. They also have the DNA of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, of African-American people, of Afro-Latino people. And, um, and so it really hides the black and brown parts of our identity. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I mean, to me, the best thing is to be patient when we talk about where we come from. And allow ourselves to explain. You know, I'm not just, I'm not just, uh, you know, a Mexican kid from South Central, but I'm also, you know, my mother is uh, is Salvadoran, my father's Mexican, uh, my sister married an African American guy. We consider this African American family part of our family, and so I think we really should take time when we're describing personally to our friends and family mm-hmm. what and who we are. Um, take time to recognize how complex and how diverse your average American family can be. Nope, it is complex. It's diverse, and I'm glad you took the time to unpack that for me. When we come forward, I want to talk about um, white insecurities and economic exploitation. I'll explain when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Hector Tobar on KBLA Talk 1580. His new book is called Our Migrant Souls. A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. We were just unpacking uh uh, decoding that word moments ago. I, I, I'm watching my clock here, Hector, and I want to I want to advance this conversation to talking about the ways in which, and again, you unpack this in the text, but the ways in which, how, how might I frame this? The ways in which white insecurities are at the epicenter or undergird um, the travail and the challenge um, that Latino community is up against even as we speak. And then I want to talk about this notion of economic exploitation. We sort of tiptoed around it earlier, but I want to come directly to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But talk, just, just talk to me, first of all, about this notion of white insecurity. Again, I go back to earlier in this, in this uh, show today where white insecurity is at the center of the fact that many Americans don't want to see black folks succeed. And here mm-hmm. we are on the, on the verge of uh, this Supreme Court decision ending a corrective program like affirmative action. They don't want to see. Many, right. not all, don't want to see us advance. Well, that same white insecurity... Uh, underpins what the Latino community is up against. Tell me more about it. Yeah, it's been something that Latino people have faced uh, ever since, um, you know, white people came and took the Southwest (laughs) in the the middle of the 19th century, in the Mexican War, 19th century, in the Mexican War. You know, in my lifetime, I remember uh, Proposition 187. Uh, Proposition 187, uh, you know, you're minding your uh, your viewers, was this um, ballot initiative to deny services to undocumented immigrants Mm -hmm. and would have denied uh, undocumented immigrants the right to go to public schools. It was eventually overturned, right, by by, uh, the courts. Uh, But that was an attempt to keep Los Angeles, to keep California white, because in, the, in that time, in the 1980s and 90s, there had been so much migration. It was changing the feel of California. 
Um, you know, a, a city like Los Angeles, uh, Spanish was was becoming almost the dominant language of the city. And so that was causing a lot of insecurity, a lot of, uh, you know, anxiety among uh, among all residents of the state. And so something like Prop- Proposition 187 was passed. And I just think that that's behind a lot of these uh, immigration policies. It has to do with um, uh, a people who feel less secure about their economy, less secure about their country, and looking for ways in which um, they can lash out and ways in which they can explain to themselves why things are wrong, why things are going south. Yeah. I, I don't mean, um, let me pivot now to talk about economic exploitation. These things are obviously not disconnected, mm-hmm. <laughs> white insecurity and economic exploitation. Right. Clearly not disconnected, Hector, as you well know. But again, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to be too didactic about this, but if I were to frame what black folk are up against economically, I'd frame it this way, that in every single mm-hmm. leading economic indicator category, black right, folks right. still lag far behind white folk in every single leading economic right. indicator category for all that we've done, for all the, all the, all the, uh, the time that we've been here, <laughs> uh, brought here against our will, right. um, we, we still lag far behind in every economic category. I would call that, for the sake of this conversation, economic deprivation. What I see the Latino community experience more often than not is economic exploitation. You take that distinction, and if right. so, if so, talk to me about the economic exploitation of the Latino community, even to this very moment. Well, part of what the Black community is facing is a century of policies that were that that were designed to create a Black underclass. You know, and Ta-Nehisi Coates in his journalism has written a lot about this. Mm-hmm. You know about about the uh, the way in which they spread money to white soldiers coming back from World War II, but not to black soldiers, and the redlining laws, and all the things that happened in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that has set uh, the black community uh, behind, and it's made them uh, it's it's made it's be, it's become this permanent obstacle, kind of new Jim Crow to overcome. Uh, the exploitation of Latino people is just that they are this labor force that uh, is working in fields for very low wages. Uh, part of what makes Latino immigrant workers exploitable is fear. Mm. So the idea that there's this wall that you can be deported over, it makes you easier to exploit by your employers. It means they can take advantage of you, not only by employers. I've talked to many immigrant women who get in relationships with Latino men who are citizens or legal residents, who when things get kind of bad between them and their relationship, these men threaten to call the immigration service, the border patrol on these women. And so immigration status becomes a way in which Latino people are exploited. Yeah. Um, A couple other things I want to get to before I lose you at the top of the hour in about four minutes here. Um, Let me start with this. And there's not a you know a, a deep uh, passage uh, per se about this in your text. This is not the focus of the book, but I, I don't want to get your take on it, given that you are uh, born and raised in L.A. And of course, this is true across the country. But your your take uh, quickly on the black brown dynamic in this country right about now. Mm. Oh my God! Well, you see, most brown people, most Latino people who move to this country, move into traditionally black neighborhoods. So there is, on the level of the streets, this very powerful um, alliance, de facto alliance, where people live next to each other without, usually, without many problems. Mm -hmm. Yes, the occasional kind of, 
you know, outbreak of, of uh, violence or misunderstanding or whatever. But generally speaking, I think that that that's the heart of it, you know. And as I said, there's lots of mixing going on between these traditional groups. There's now this Blacksican identity. But beyond that, I think that as Latino people become educated, as they learn about how this country works, one of the lessons that you learn is that African-American struggle has shaped this country. The civil rights laws that we have, which are enjoyed not just by black people or Latino people, but also by gay people and Asian people and many other groups, these laws against discrimination were laws that were created thanks to uh, black struggle. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, yes. No, I finished. Please, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Hector. Please finish. Yes. And, and so, yeah. And so I think that, um, that you know, a lot of Latino people are aware of that and they see... Um, they see black history as this example of how you live in America without, uh, without a boot on your neck, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and that, that's, and that, and I think that that's a very, and, and so I think that and, and in many places, there is a very strong black Brown political alliance. You know, in my book, I visit New York mm-hmm. and New York La- Latino politics is essentially Puerto, Puerto Rican and Dominican politics. Sure. And Puerto Rican and Dominican people grow up, uh, you know, in families that are Afro-Latino. And so there are these natural and very yeah. powerful alliances. You know, the vote for um, the vote against Trump was almost absolutely you know, unanimous in, in Spanish Harlem and other places uh, yeah. in, in the East Coast where there are uh, Latino people. I got 60 seconds here. Um, what did you make of the uh, the Nuri Martinez tape? One of her one of her deputies is now running for another oh. seat on the city council. What what did that do as you see it? to black-brown relations in this city and largely across the country? Well, you know, it exposed, uh, it exposed the cynicism of, of certain Latino politicos who want to construct political machines in the, uh, in the same way that other, uh, other ethnic groups have, other uh, groups have in, in United States history. I'm, I'm delighted that they were exposed. I think most Latino people were embarrassed mm-hmm. and angered and leading the charge for for these politicians to yep. be removed from office. Um, so I was proud of people in the Latino community for standing up and, and being outraged. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are machine politicians uh, come in all colors, <laughs> in all creeds <laughs> and faiths. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and they and they do they do the cynical things that they do, thinking that nobody's watching. But thankfully, in this case, somebody was was listening and and watching and. And they got their just rewards. Yep. In thirty quick seconds here, uh, finally, um, the images of the uh, of the Latino community in TV and film getting better, worse, or about the same? About the same, getting better a little bit every every you know every time. But we need yeah. more uh, like we need more Latino executives in, in Hollywood and in television and film. Nope, couldn't have said it uh, more succinctly. The book is called Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino, written by the Pulitzer Prize winning author. Hector Tobar, who I've been honored to have had on this program for the hour. Hector, thank you for your time, man. Congrats on the book. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.